Many of us are overfed, but undernourished. And so we're seeing a lot of these things coming through. So you just have to give your body the tools, remove the things causing the problem, and it has the ability to heal itself, right? Headaches are not a byproduct of aspirin deficiency, right? There's something else going on. And that's what we have to look at here is is where's your body? What's blocking it from doing its job? Welcome to the Wits and Weights podcast. I'm your host, Philip Pape, and this twice-a-week podcast is dedicated to helping you achieve physical self-mastery by getting stronger, optimizing your nutrition, and upgrading your body composition. We'll uncover science-backed strategies for movement, metabolism, muscle, and mindset with a skeptical eye on the fitness industry so you can look and feel your absolute best. Let's dive right in. Wits and Weights community, welcome to another episode of the Wits and Weights podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Josh Deck an ex-paramedic and current holistic nutritionist who specializes in gut health. I wanted to bring him on the show to explore the complex and often misunderstood link between gut health, fat loss, and body composition specifically. How does gut bacteria affect your metabolism, hormonal balance, inflammation, and overall physical performance? What specific foods and nutrients can nurture a healthy gut microbiome to enhance fat loss and improve body composition? And as always, we'll bust some common myths and we'll highlight practical, everyday strategies for maintaining gut health and giving it the attention it deserves in your routine. Josh, who is also host of Reversible, the ultimate gut health podcast. Go subscribe and follow right now. That's Reversible, the ultimate gut health podcast. Knows all about the connections between your gut and the rest of your health, body, and mind. And it was the successes his clients have had with complex digestive diseases, previously thought to be impossible, that got him connected to some of the world's most renowned doctors. Since then, he's been recruited to the Priority Health Academy as a medical lecturer, helping educate doctors on a holistic approach to gut health, and he will definitely educate you and me today as we dive into the surprising link between gut health, fat loss, and body composition. Josh, welcome to the show. Philip, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, As we talked about before we started recording, this is the first deep dive we'll be doing into gut health, so... I know the listeners are excited to learn all about it. And just so that they understand your expertise in this area, just tell us why gut health in particular appealed to you in the context of holistic health. It truly was. It's one of those things that was actually love at first sight. You know, I used to be a paramedic and I was in the reactive healthcare space. I wanted to do more proactive and really help people change their lives the way I do now. And so it was just very, very different when... Long and short, after a chain of events, I was at a trade show. I heard somebody speaking from a holistic nutrition school about the gut and gut biome. And I heard that. And I said, that is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And so I started saving up and I went back to school and I've been hooked ever since. And we talk about the importance. And I'll tell you, it's kind of a quick overview. We can dive into this one, Philip, more if you'd like. But our guts, I argue our gut and our gut microbiomes, it's a bacteria community living inside of our gut. I argue they're more important than our DNA at the very least, as important. Because if you think about it, we have 23,000 genes in the human genome, right, that make up a human being. We have over 3 million genes inside your gut bacteria. So they are vast in number. They outnumber your own body cells 10 to 1. They do everything for you from detoxification to hormone balancing to producing vitamins and cellular health and immune response. And they determine how social you feel like being and what diseases you will or will not get. They are everything. And it's one of the most fascinating emerging sciences that I've ever seen. Yeah, I was going to say, when you first started saying you fell in love with it, I was like, 
people don't see it as a sexy topic, so to speak, right? But when you really get into it, I mean, you're speaking to me from as, with the science and kind of engineering background of, um, and I've talked to my girls about this before, how we have more bacteria in our body, like well more bacteria than our body than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. We're just effectively walking uh, hosts, right? <laughs> these other, yeah, I mean, yeah. the question is, are you you or are you more microbes, right? Exactly. I mean, we're probably... <laughs> We're like Pigpen, you know, from Charlie Brown, this dust cloud of microbes pulling around us and following us everywhere. It's it's really wild. Yeah, and especially that it affects so many different things. One of the the parallels is we talk a lot in the show about building muscle, and I've come more and more to believe that muscle is the center of, of so many metabolic diseases and, and health issues we have, even more than, than weight management, right? And so I kind of hammer that home that message. I like your uh, message here that maybe gut health itself can have a profound you know, cascading effect on everything else. So I want to get into that. And the audience here who listens to the show specifically cares a lot about body composition and fat loss and building muscle and that kind of thing. So we don't necessarily have to get into every single facet of health, but how does it directly impact those things? You know, body composition, hormones, uh, maybe maybe appetite, satiety, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Well, probiotics, right? Be it bacterium living inside of your gut or oral probiotic supplements you take. They work as signaling messengers. So they have all kinds of stuff we're still truly learning about. There are trillions, about 100 trillion bacteria inside of your gut. And we're still just learning about most of them. We, can, we really have really firm studies on about 100. These are the ones we can really see inside GI maps. We're exploring different things with different genus and species. But it's all very rudimentary stuff in the grand scheme of it. We're talking as rudimentary as you know, bacteria knowledge really in contrast, would have been in the 1800s when we just discovered that they exist, right? We haven't even discovered really the use of the biome started becoming a thing back in the late 80s, early 90s um, and understanding the gut and gut bacteria. So it's really quite complex. And unfortunately, the truth is, Philip, we don't fully understand how the gut bacteria relates to weight loss, but we do know some. So there are certain strains, for example, that influence inflammation, hormonal balancing, insulin, and carbohydrate metabolism a really big one popular in media right now is acromancia. And that's when we do see quite a lot. Um, and that, again, helps dozens and dozens of benefits from that one specific strain. But I'll give you an interesting anecdote. And effectively, the study concluded that it helps, but we don't know why. So researchers actually gave mice a heavy dose of antibiotics to wipe out their gut bacteria, right? They wanted to test the effects of calorie deficits or calorie-restricted diets to see would they lose weight. So in the control mice, right, that was a healthy, untouched gut bacteria. They found calorie restriction, of course, like anybody else, reduced body weight. And it had tons of benefits to their gut and gut biomes. They increased their growth beneficial bacteria, of course, growth hormone, and uh, muscle retention, all the things you typically see from having a caloric deficit or from fasting. But in the mice who are given antibiotics, they flushed out as much bacteria as they could from their gut. They didn't get the same benefits from calorie restriction. Weight loss was either fully restricted or limited. And so it really effectively led to the conclusion that our gut bacteria have a direct role in weight loss, right? So it begs the question, like, if your bacteria is damaged, can you still lose weight? And so to reference another study, they fed obese mice because mice eat poop. Right, that's just the facts. I'm talking about eating feces. I'm not saying you guys should eat mouse poop, but what they did is they gave these mice, uh, they fed the obese mice diets that were mixed with feces from lean, healthy mice, and the obese mice were able to lose weight effectively. And on the flip side, right, lean mice were given bacteria from obese mice, and they were more prone to weight gain. And so it just goes to really show our gut bacteria have a major role in weight loss, and so they don't really understand 
fully how it works, but we know that it does work. That's something we're still exploring. But the other studies really indicate like it has a role in the food reward system and all kinds of stuff for compulsive eating and you no know, dietary driven behaviors. So there's lots of really amazing connections there. So I want to explore that, right? Because I I, I fully um, subscribe to the idea that we don't have to know why things work always to understand that they work, especially when they're very complex. Like even when it comes to how, why, how muscles uh, respond to a stimulus and grow, we're still trying to figure that out. So when you talk about the, the mice experiment, um, is this an isocaloric uh, experiment? Like both are fed the same calories or is it ad libitum? Like they get to eat whatever they want. Well, they were fed the same. So they're fed identical diets. And so okay. the idea is if we want to compare, of course, right, any comparative analysis has to be as identical as possible on both sides to reduce as many complicating factors or restrictions as possible. And so that's what they've done. They gave them the same diets, the same calorie deficit, yes. the same everything, and found that the disrupted bacterium did not lose weight, which besides the obvious, right, food and insulin and 60% of, you know, America being uh, considered type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, we can actively see all the food and all the things, the 17,000 plus pesticides, how they actually disrupt our gut microbiomes and lead to disease processes in that way alone, I believe that's a large contributor to the obesity crisis. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I want to poke at that one more, one more level because when I hear that the deficit was the same, I, I would challenge that in the wording because I imagine that the, res, the reason they didn't lose weight was because they couldn't maintain the same deficit in those mice because so, the other side of the equation probably um, probably decreased, right? The metabolism, I got I to gotta imagine their, their expenditure came down and that was why they couldn't lose weight, right? Because we know energy balance is what it is. Well, you're right. So there would be some complications there, right? For example, if the mice were bloated, having pain, they might lay around more. They might not be as active or as energetic. So definitely that's a factor that it comes part and parcel with altering any microbiota, yeah. right? I specialize yeah. in Crohn's and colitis and those people are some of the most fatigued, drained, exhausted people in medicine next to cancer patients actively going through chemo. Um, so those are factors we can't control. But if we even look at just testing, you know, a BMR or an RMR, we can see a lot of congruency in there as well. So you're very, very right to state that, Philip, because is it the only factor? No. Is it a major playing factor in the overall outcomes at the end, regardless of its mechanism and pathology? Yes. Yeah. It's important for people to know because then, then they understand what the mech... It's kind of like sleep, right? When we look at sleep deprivation studies, and we know that it increases hunger and can lead to more consumption. But in studies where they've controlled the calories, it also leads to differences in weight loss. But that's because the expenditure has changed for the sleep-deprived group, right? Their, their, their body compensates. So I was just curious about that. So you're saying we don't really know the mechanisms per se. And part of that is because there's a lot, to work, a lot of work to be done. And you said we only understand 100 species out of, 100, out of a trillion or 100 trillion. What was that? So we have roughly estimates say between one and two thousand different species, seven to nine thousand strains. Some estimates are now saying two to four thousand species. It's it's ever evolving at this stage. We've really scratched the surface. But even if we take the one to two thousand with seven to nine thousand strains, we can multiply it out to say there's eighteen million different bacterium multiplied out into about a hundred trillion different individual bacterium uh, within the gut. And so when we look at that, that's sort of when we say we only know a hundred. I say that because it's what we test for. So we use GI mapping, which is a stool sample, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And maybe many of your listeners are. It's a GI sample or stool sample we send to a lab for analysis where they give us a cultural count of all the bacterium individually, either their species umbrellas, like all lactobacillus, all bifidobacteriums, or there are some other tests that can really break them down by individual genus. So we can see the strains of each individual and what's lacking. 
And so with those, again, we maybe see upwards of 100 different genus of bacteria on these tests. And that's what we can actively test for or have some sort of ability to intervene on, be it supplementation, probiotics, spore probiotics, those types of things. Okay, so then is there a uh, set of profiles or an ideal profile where we maybe a balance of these certain species that we're going for in most humans, or is it highly individual? And then how does that balance affect some of this? For example, hormonal disruptions. You know what I'm asking? Yeah. So when we look at reference ranges, the thing is about lab testing, they're pretty arbitrary for the most part, right? We know this because look, for example, at blood labs, right? I'm sure you've seen your fair share of blood labs or studied blood work over time. And those reference ranges are based on a population where 90 plus percent of people are not metabolically healthy. They're actually very sick. And so what we're considering normal is far from optimal. And the challenge further with these lab tests, and this is just the truth of them, they're useful tools, but often non-diagnostic, is that you only need for adults 120 different reference points to create lab reference ranges for this test. So we can say 120 people, maybe they have sick bacteria, maybe they don't. And so you and I, Philip, as total strangers, share approximately 99 to 99.9% of our DNA, right? Never met, total strangers. We share only 20 to 30% of the DNA of our microbiome. And so we look at these reference ranges. For me, I'm not looking to get people, ideally, yeah, back in the green. If you're on the red, you're non-detectable, that's a problem. But you know, dealing in gut and gut health and gut disease, I look at these reference ranges as exactly that, the references. But oftentimes we use them to try to clinically diagnose. Yeah. Right now, if you detect pathogens, salmonella, you know, type of uh, pathogenic strains of E. coli, Clostridium difficile, we can see those go, okay, yeah, this person's very ill, they have an infection, or there's parasites. But what reference ranges are ideal for that person's physiology? I say still to this point, looking at probably, you know, two dozen GI maps a month, I think it's a crapshoot, no pun intended. Okay. Okay. <laughs> is, so is there a baseline you can establish for an individual then when they're young that would, that would tell you that? Or, or like right out of the womb, you already have this big divergence? Yeah. So I'm not going to give your, your listeners anything useful here. So <laughs> unfortunately, it's really building awareness around what it means. But here's the deal. When we're born, again, we have such a variety of different species and strains, and that depends largely on what's consumed, how active we are. Your bacteria, right, if you're vaginally born versus C-section, dramatically different because you're actually inoculated, covered head to toe. Um, Even orally, you'll get some of that in you. If you look at bottle-fed versus breastfed, we know the incidence rates for SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome is twice as high. From a meta-analysis of 19 or 20 different studies, it's twice as high for babies who are bottle-fed than those who are strictly breastfed. And so we know these microbes have a role to play, the nutrients that come from it. If you look at, for example, people who grow up on farms versus those who live in apartments in New York City, very different microbes and microbial diversity or variety of bacteria that live inside the gut. And so it's all about exposure, getting outside, playing with animals, letting them lick your face, playing in the dirt, touching you know grass and food and natural things. And that's how we develop variety. The challenge is, again, the baseline we might get from a baby to answer the original question, can you get a baseline when you're born? Well, that thumbprint, so to speak, that blueprint of microbacteria, that microbiome DNA actually sets in differently for each person, but it really establishes around four years old, plus or minus a year. And so we could take it from there. But then the question is, bottle fed, breastfed, home raised, playing outside, helicopter parents, what kind of food, what kind of diversity, is a child picky? All those things matter. And so it's such a unfortunately, well, I'll say fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, we know enough about it. We can take action on a lot of these things, 
And I use GI mapping in almost every Crohn's colitis patient that I see. The unfortunate part is that it's such a wide array of variables for missteps or you know misjudgment or misdiagnosis. It really is impossible to say here is our answer and here's the definitive line because there's way too much variety and we're dealing with trillions. We probably won't know for another hundred years. Okay, good. So we've established that. <laughs> so now we can maybe take the the bigger picture approach of first of all, I do want to understand the link with some things that you mentioned, like inflammation mm-hmm. and, and others that might be associated with obesity and people's who who struggle uh, with weight management um, because we often attack it from the behavior and choice and lifestyle perspective, which I think is good for everybody to do, but some people don't respond as well. And I want to understand that link and what what is destroying our gut bacteria or altering it as we live our life. And then, of course, we'll get into how do we develop healthy you know, gut bacteria. So I just threw like three different questions at you, but I think you got, I think you got it all. <laughs> yeah, I'm making notes. <laughs> so, so let's deal with inflammation first. So inflammation coming from the gut comes from a lot of places primarily we're going to see it from bacteria. Now, every bacteria lives in the gut, right? The, the, well, not every bacteria lives in the gut. The ones that live in your gut are responsible for your gut. We do have microbiomes all over the body, right? Oral, nasal, uh, on your scalp, your hair, skin, eyebrows, groin, right? Rectal, vaginal, oral. These are all different microbiomes. Um, and everybody has a unique one. And so inflammation comes when there's disharmony or imbalance. And so the acronym I typically use, or the analogy rather, is that you know, everything in this world has a role to play in the economy or in the general ecosystem of a city, a town, or a neighborhood. And whether we agree with it or not, even the crack dealer at the gas station has a role to play in the local economy, right? Or the local judicial system. It's got a role somewhere. And so they have a role to play. So even the bad bacteria, the candida, the clostridium, those ones still have a role to play when they are in regular normal levels. But if every gas station, every grocery store, every coffee shop sold nothing but crack, now we've got a problem, right? Things just fall apart. And so in the same way, when you have an overrun of these bad, what we call opportunistic or pathogen bacteria, the dangerous ones, then we have imbalances. Just the same if you have too much good. Imagine too much gentrification. It's all, you know, 25-year-old white girls moving into a neighborhood. Now you have 15 Starbucks and no groceries, right? So it's another You're issue. You're going to trigger a bunch of people on this, this uh, episode. 100%. Oh, it's all good. Absolutely. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so when we look at this, we have to understand the imbalances that are the problem. Everything lives. It's not about competition. It's about harmony inside the gut. And so when people are triggered, high cortisol, high stress, high inflammation creates disharmony. And so when we look at these and say, okay, there's imbalance in the gut bacteria, these do three main things that we'll start to see. Number one, we can see actual toxins being produced, right? Might be going to the term of LPS, that's lipopolysaccharide, or another word is endotoxins, right? Endo just meaning within. The toxins created by these bacteria. Now they get out, they create inflammation, they lead to more imbalance. Inflammation also creates imbalance because healthy, happy bacteria can't live inside of a house that's on fire. But the bad guys love that. They want to move into inflammation. They want to create inflammation. They want sugar, alcohol, breads, those types of things. And so that's one way. Imbalance creates actual inflammatory markers or byproducts from the bacteria. The second thing we see from the inflammation is leaky gut. Now, there are some people who still say, ah, leaky gut BS, but there are some really great informations out there about leaky gut. Uh, We know it exists. We know the role of zonulin, for example, that actually creates further leaks. But when you have inflammation, the cells in your intestines spread apart further than normal. 
Now, typically, they're held together by something called gap junctions. It's a little binder that holds them together. In healthy things, right, nutrients pass through that wall of the small intestine. It's only one cell thick before it enters your blood. You can get to your lymphatic system there, all kinds. But that's micromolecules. They're at an appropriate size to transfer through the tissue to get into your blood and circulate as they should. But if you're inflamed and you have large leaks and large gaps, now macromolecules, these endotoxins, these things can pass through getting around the superhighway of your body, which is your blood, your lymphatic. It can get to your brain, your joints, your skin. And when it gets there, it disrupts those microbiomes. So we see acne, psoriasis, arthritis, hair loss, all kinds of other things, anxiety, depression, if things get into the brain because these leaks go beyond. They create leaky lung. So I've seen asthma from a gut inflammation. We see leaky brain, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, other mental health conditions can all be connected back to the gut. In all and so autoimmune conditions. Uh, one of the primary supposed, legs yep. actually of autoimmune mm-hmm. conditions is leaky gut. So lupus and MS, all that stuff comes back to the gut. Um, so that's our main two ways is endotoxins, leaky gut. The third way that we can see would be actual immunological issues because, you know, 70 to 90% of your immune system is within your gut, right? The actual B cells and T cells, these immune cells are grown and matured in the gut. Or we see an imbalance in things like neurotransmitters, which have a feedback loop to creating stress, to creating inflammation, GI changes, which again, further disrupt things. So those are kind of your main umbrellas in which we see inflammation coming from the gut. Okay. Yeah. No. So assuming there are too many crack dealers or rich white girls, you're going to have... Uh, <laughs> You're going to have the toxins, create inflammatory markers, the the leakage for the macromolecules that can then spread throughout the body and immune issues, immunological issues. So, yeah, that's good. So then how do we how do we reverse that? How do we either develop a healthy gut bacteria in the first place if someone is listening to it and, and maybe is younger? I assume there's a time factor to this, but maybe I'm wrong of of age and lifestyle. How do we how do we develop the healthy bacteria? Mm, great question. So we can go all the way back to birth. Right. I mean. We know, like we talked about, we mentioned being born vaginal and breastfed changes everything. And it, breastfeeding actually changes the structure, the bone structure of the, of the nose, the mouth, and the skull. Um, you'll notice people who nose breathe and who are breastfed tend to have a wider jaw and more square shape and wider, uh, broader cheekbones than those who are maybe bottle fed and mouth breathe, right? You can actually see that shrinking. Um, and so there's physiological changes there, which translate to the rest of your health. But of course, the immediate inoculation of bacterium from breast milk right? And then, of course, that inoculation from being vaginally born through the birth canal. Those are our top two ways from birth. Now, nobody listening to this podcast is a baby, so we'll just skip ahead to the next bit. It's growing up, right? If you have kids and they're outside playing, let them get their hands dirty. Let them touch stuff, right? Let them go and pick their nose. You're going to introduce bacteria. They're going to get sick. Their immune system is going to build. It's going to adapt. That's the adaptive immune system. Again, like we talked about, farmers have the most diverse robust microbiomes of all that are typically tested, or again, like native tribes and native indigenous tribes living in the jungle, living off the land, right? They have the most inoculation of bacteria and are the healthiest, coincidentally, don't have a tenth of the health issues we have. And so that's number one is development. It's exposure. It's from birth. It's regulation. Hey, this is Philip, and I hope you're enjoying this guest interview on Wits and Weights. If you're finding it valuable, you can get a bonus conversation we recorded if you're on our email list. Just go to witsandweights.com slash bonus or click the link in the show notes. Insiders on our email list will get a link to the bonus conversation where my guest will give you the exact steps to take related to one of the topics in today's episode. Again, these conversations are only available 
if you're on our free email list. To get the bonus exclusive content with today's guest, just go to witsandweights.com slash bonus or click the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Now, if we talk about the things, how to basically create a better gut, we want to stop, talk about prevention number one. We want to prevent damage. That's your alcohols, your sugars. I'm a big advocate against gluten for the most part, especially in autoimmune disease. Those are huge, huge components. Uh, we have to look at antibiotics, medications, smoking, fried food, packaged foods, high fructose corn syrup, things that damage the liver because everything's connected. Right? Western medicine has this very reductionist view of the human body where it's just your gut just your thyroid, just your brain, just your skin. We have skin issues with topical ointment, but your skin is a detox organ, largest organ in the body. It's typically a reflection of internal issues coming out externally. And so we have this reductionist view where it's systematic one thing at a time, but your entire body's connected. So we have to look at that general health. So if we're doing things to disrupt that high stress, basic principles of like not chewing your food, eating garbage food, those disrupt the gut. Right, anything that disrupts the biome, pesticides. Right, we dump a billion pounds of pesticides on our food every year. There's about seventeen thousand different pesticides approved for use in the USA, and there's fifty percent more highly toxic pesticides used in the USA than, say, in the UK, for example. Um, highly dangerous stuff that we know causes genetic damage, DNA damage, destroys gut bacteria. Glyphosate being one of the worst, um, one of the worst offenders that we see right now. Oatmeal for those listening. That's uh, that's Roundup, right? Yeah. That's Roundup, absolutely. Yep. Yep. And all your grains, right? They're sprayed and covered in this stuff. And that's the problem is, is we're being fed poison effectively. Um, we look at things in our water. We know there are forever chemicals, these PFAs. We know that 60 plus percent of all Americans take regular prescription drugs. Maybe it's 50%, but 60, 70% over 50, 60 years old take two or more regular drugs. So imagine how many pharmaceuticals, birth control, all that goes into our water. So drinking filtered water, these are all prevention steps, right? It's like, how do I get my house to stop burning down? We'll stop pouring gasoline on it first, number one. Number two, we want to talk repair and rebuild. That's where we, one, after we've stopped, we let things cool off. We improve inflammatory responses. We give your body the tools it needs in the form of resources, which is food, nutrients, nutrition. Many of us are overfed, but undernourished. And so we're seeing a lot of these things coming through. So you just have to give your body the tools, remove the things causing the problem, and it has the ability to heal itself, right? Headaches are not a byproduct of aspirin deficiency, right? There's something else going on. And that's what we have to look at here is, is where's your body? What's blocking it from doing this job? So I know I know what people are thinking right now, right? They're like, oh, here we go again. That just sounds so overwhelming, right? All these <laughs> steps that I have to, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, we talk a lot about in the show about flexible dieting and doing what works for you and not, not necessarily changing everything all at once, but taking steps day by day. And I guess I know that, I know that's what the listener is thinking, right? Because you said mm -hmm. alcohol, sugar, gluten, medications, birth control, smoking, high... You know, some things are the big ones like smoking. I mean, I hopefully nobody's doing that. I mean, people are doing that, but hopefully that's like a big one that you would cut out. But, you know, when you say sugar, when you say gluten, right, a lot of people might say, well, you know, I tolerate gluten fine and I, I need to eat a lot of carbs because I'm building muscle and I'm also man managing my weight okay and I feel okay. Where Where's that line? Where's that balance? Because I know people don't want to just restrict a whole bunch of things. I'm, I'm just I'm just asking where that where, where that is for you. Yeah, that's that's what you're really willing to sacrifice. Like I, I'm covered in tattoos. I know heavy metals are bad for my body, and I'm probably going to fight these the rest of my life. And I made a decision. I was like, I want them anyway. Uh, so we make bad choices, you know. Uh, ultimately, 
the closer we get to nature, the further we get from disease. And wherever that line is, is up to you. For me, I'm a big advocate for animal-based diets, but I don't eat carnivore. I eat a lot of meat. And I still eat some fruits and make soup for my wife or something. You know, maybe then I'll have, I'll have some vegetables. But that for me is where I'm most comfortable. I feel the most nourished. Some people say, well, I want to go and drink. Well, the good news is, well, bad news is we know zero milligrams of alcohol are ever good for the human body. But the sure. good news is you have an immense amount of defense mechanisms. In fact, there's something in between in your stomach, between the stomach and small intestine called TLR4. It's toll-like receptor number four. And they stand guard. And they basically say, you can come in, you shall not pass. Right? They stand there like Gandalf at the bridge. And so what they want to do is they control and regulate things coming in and out. I'm sure we've all eaten something or those with sensitive guts know, oh, I've eaten, I've drank Tim Horton's coffee or I've had something and it ran right through me. 10 minutes, I was on the toilet. That's actually your toll-like receptor for opening up, deliberately creating leaky gut. Leaky gut is a defense mechanism. It's a good thing. So it opens the floodgates, right? Like putting your thumb over a hose on the driveway to wash things out and push them through so it will not toxify the body. Your body does that with gluten. It recognizes it. Now, not everybody has a notable bloated gluten sensitivity. But Dr. Tom O'Brien, he says to me, he says the ones who have gut issues with gluten are the lucky ones because they know pretty quickly it's the gluten. But those who have arthritis, skin issues, um, brain fog, mental clarity issues, two, three days later, we're not putting it together. But they say everybody has some kind of issue with gluten, whether or not they tolerate it, whether or not they're celiac, everyone has some kind of issue. Uh, and those toll-like receptors open that floodgate up in some way. Now, the other hand, those toll-like receptors, when you drink alcohol, what are the main uses for alcohol, right? We use them for drinking. So it's either celebration or commiseration, whatever your preference is. We use it for sanitization. And we sometimes use it as you know, additives or ingredients for tinctures, but that's about it. Otherwise, alcohol has no main purpose, really, maybe as a preserve or something else, mm -hmm. but that's it. And so we know for, we know, for example, for using it as sanitization, it destroys bacteria. But we, most of our bacteria live in our large intestine. The vast majority, like 90 plus percent of our gut bacteria are there. It's three to five pounds of it making up two to three percent of the average human body weight. Now, imagine taking alcohol in a colonoscopy and rinsing out the colon. One, it would burn like hell. But two, you would destroy everything in there. So these toll-like receptors do have a defense mechanism. What they do is they block that alcohol and trickle it through ever so slowly. You can absorb some through the mouth, some through the stomach, which very few things can absorb in the stomach itself. And it trickles it through at a rate that your body can absorb it into the blood to put it through your liver. It would rather put it to your liver and your brain than into your gut to destroy your gut bacteria. That is how sacred our gut bacteria is to the body. And so there are defense mechanisms. Sugar feeds bad bacteria. Some people can tolerate it better. If you have candida, if you have imbalances, those guys love sugar. They will make more toxins. I'm not saying sugar-free forever, right? But if you have an infection, maybe look at it for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks as a remedy of sorts, right? To get you to healthy where you can tolerate the influx of these sugars. Yeah. So a couple of themes come to mind. One is our body's ability to withstand some level of toxicity, but not very much. And it really depends on the toxin you're putting in. So like you said, there's always a trade-off. And I definitely, I definitely agree on alcohol. Like, there's no good that comes from it, and even the rationalizations people use for having it, I think there are substitutions for that. But the the other thing was, um, I'm also a fan of elimination diets. So, like, what you're suggesting, even though I don't 100% buy into everything about gluten, and we can agree to disagree, that's fine. We're not going to solve it here. But on <laughs> sure, and that's okay. But 
on the elimination diet piece of, and I'm sure you walk clients through some version of that where you basically, you know, stop exposing your body to a whole bunch of things and then maybe reintroduce as needed to see what the offender might be. Mm -hmm. I did want to ask about related to food, fiber and prebiotics. People ask about that all the time. Like, what is the role of fiber? How much? We kind of know the general guidelines, but some people swear by more. Some people say, you know, too, there's too much fiber you can have. And what exactly the role is of that. And then also prebiotics and um, both foods, probiotic and prebiotic foods and supplements. So I don't know how many, again, big topic. But yeah, oh, great. What everybody, what everybody can, wants to know about. I can, I can skim those short. So sure. let's talk about pre, post, and probiotics. So use the analogy of fish in a fish tank, right? Your probiotics are the living organism inside. That's the bacterium. That's the goldfish in the fishbowl, right? The prebiotics are the food. That's what the bacteria or the fish eat. The postbiotics are the fish poop. That's what they produce. Now, that poop can be very, very good. In the ecosystem, there are critters that eat that poop as food. There are critters that utilize it. It can be a good thing. But if we have too much poop in the tank, right, it gets really muddy and the fish die. And that's the same thing with the bacteria. If we have too much byproducts that are not being utilized, too much bad bacteria producing excess bacteria poop, so to speak, then that becomes problematic. And so prebiotics are the food. We want to know, right, not everybody needs prebiotics. If you have a really nice healthy balance, prebiotics might be helpful for you. If you have imbalance or like a low flora of good bacteria, prebiotics might be very good to bring them up to par. If you have lots of high bacteria and bad bacteria, you're producing too much fish poop, right? And that becomes problematic. On the other hand, they compete for space, right? Big fish eat little fish. Some other fish, they compete against each other. And so if we introduce certain species of probiotics, I use them strategically in my clients. If someone has an overgrowth, for example, of C. diff, right? A lot of people dealing with gut disease have gone through the ringer, been in hospital, treated with antibiotics. There are actually certain strains and species of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium we can use to inhibit or reduce the risk factor of getting a C. diff infection. Somebody dealing with candida, right? Certain overgrowths, we can use like Saccharomyces boulardii, for example, to help inhibit candida overgrowth or SIBO and overgrowth of bacterium. Lactobacillus reuteri might be very good for that. Um, bacterial vaginosis, reuteri and rhamnosis are great for that. Like women who get UTIs, my clients, I'll literally give them a coconut oil uh, I'll tell them, take a tampon, put coconut oil on it, and take this is a one by Metagenics called Ultraflora Women's, and it's got lactobacillus reuteri and rhamnosis. I'll have an empty A capsule on the tampon, insert, leave it overnight. And nine out of 10 times, it's gone in one day. Uh, so far, 100% of the time, it's gone in two. It's even been used for yeast infections. Because this is for urinary tract infection in women. Urinary tract like, and yeast okay. infections, that's right. And you, okay. Because those infections are imbalances of bacteria. That's all it is. And bacteria compete for space. And if you use vaginally native bacteria, right, like rhamnosis and reutery, um, they can get in there and do their job. And the same happens in the gut. And we can use bacteria strategically competing for space. Um, and so that's kind of the overview of prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. Now, let's talk about fiber. I'm in the air on this one. So as a gut specialist dealing with, again, Crohn's colitis being one of the most severe gut diseases next to colon cancer, people, these people, they're so inflamed, they can't breathe, they can't do things, they can't go out. Sometimes they're 30, 40, 50 bowel movements a day with blood and mucus. It's, it's quite debilitating. And so a lot of them can't handle the fiber because they can't break it down, right? It's very rough. But even myself, I have a very healthy gut. But I don't eat a lot of fiber and my bowels are great. In fact, yeah. I actually, I tried on a challenge carnivore for something like eight weeks, give or take. And I did my blood work and my GI maps. 
the month or two before and several months after. I went carnivore and then still animal-based to this day. My blood work was improved dramatically. My GI map, my stool was improved dramatically. And I get very little fiber. And so I truly am on the fence. Fiber can be great. I use it in samples, for example. Someone comes back and they have very low diversity. I will give them you know, probiotic-based foods, fermented food, probiotic supplements, spore probiotics to get it and grow. And I will nurture those with prebiotics and food. But right now, it's something that I'm very interested in learning as the research is still coming out. The conventional wisdom is your bacteria need fiber because they take that, they ferment it, they turn it into butyrate and valerate and propionate and these short-chain fatty acids and byproducts. But on the other hand, you get people who don't eat a lick of fiber but have a very healthy body and a very healthy gut. And I think a lot of this data, like we talked about, is very, very skewed because, for example, we get people coming in with such diverse microbiomes and our samples are from a sick population. And if we were to go over to you know, the jungle somewhere and take these people living off the land and test their microbiomes, they eat very little fiber, maybe some fruits, but most plants are poisonous, right? Very few plants are going to be healthy, but most animals we can eat. Something like 2% of plants are not poison and 98% of animals are safe to eat. And so they eat primarily carnivore-based or animal-based diets, and they don't have the diseases we do. And so what I'm curious to see is the research that may be coming out soon on the microbiomes and microbial diversity of these indigenous tribes. And that, I believe, should be our reference ranges for North America. Even though we have different land, different culture, different species and strains, it's what is the standard of food and nutrition? Do we really need that much fiber? Right? Because the argument on fiber is eat it because you can't break it down. So it scrubs you and it feeds your bacteria. But the argument against meat is don't eat it because you can't break it down. Mm-hmm. So which is it? Right? We can't have it both ways. And so my clients do very, very well on animal-based diets. Very few do well on plant, in my experience. Okay, that's another another area of, of we probably have a little disagreement only because which I love. Let's hit, which, let's go. Which is fine. And, and, and yeah, and but people also know me as a nice guy. I'm not a big. I don't. I don't have big debates on this show to be honest. <laughs> um, and when it comes to fiber, honestly, there's different reasons people eat it. Right? Like in some for cases, sure. it's it's for satiety. Um, and I've definitely heard of people who who become more regular and and feel better with more fiber. But I've mm-hmm. also seen where. I've just got too much fiber or people with UC and, and IBS and stuff like that, where it's like, got to be really careful what kind of fiber you get. Other bodybuilders are like, let's just pack on the insoluble fiber when we're in a diet, you know, cause it all goes through you, you know? So, sure. um, again, I'm not, I don't think we're going to resolve that here and there's all different camps. Mm-hmm. The next thing I really want to talk about is then physical activity and, and gut health, <laughs> you know, walking and things like that, because I know that Walking after a meal seems to help with digestion and blood sugar control with a lot of folks. Um, I'm, but I'm looking at bi-directionally. How does, what's the link between physical activity and gut health? You can get specific if you want with types of activity or just more general. Sure. And, and if I could back that up one sec for you, Philip, I agree with you on the disagreeing. I think it's wise too. And I, I vote for intuitive eating. I still, to this day, even though I advocate for animal-based, do make heavy plant-based diets for my clients um, because everyone's different. And that's the interesting thing is we just don't know. There's evidence on both sides. There's things that, and this is, I I want to get this for the listener because I don't want to say, you know, eat meat, nothing but meat. I'm an advocate for animal-based, but I've had people, like I said, thrive with more plants because they need it. I think it's all individual. Once we develop a level of intuitive eating, and there's a difference there between cravings, right? Like why do women crave chocolate when they're on their period? Well, they're looking for iron, magnesium, and carbs or sugars to create progesterone. Okay. And so that's a large part of it. That's intuition. But if you drive past the McDonald's, you're like, mm, that smells good. 
that's not intuitive eating. That's a craving, right? It's genetically modified food to trigger your brain. And so when I look at this, for me, it's what works well for you. And even though I'll recommend diets to my clients, ultimately they are the judge and they know it doesn't, doesn't agree with them. And so for the listeners, take what I say with a grain of salt, do your own research, test on yourself, take what Philip says, try it, take what I say, try it and come to your own conclusion. I think that's very, very important. Oh, that for sure, right? Because I, I used to say that I won't work with uh, vegetarians or vegans in my program. And I started to open that up when I realized that they can be successful. It just requires a lot more work when you're kind of on the fringes of different diets. And I've seen the same on the other direction with, with carnivore. Interestingly, when you're trying to get a lot of protein, if you're omnivorous, it's going to be a lot of animal products anyway. Yes. <laughs> but then the, and then the plants come in there to kind of fill it in with the nutrients and the, the, dig- and the fiber and stuff. Agreed. Cool. So yeah, phys- physical activity. I'm curious about physical activity. Sure. So let's talk physical activity, that bi-directional relationship. We know physical activity actually influences the growth of beneficial bacteria. It influences the immune system, promoting detoxification, right? Sweating, major detox pathway, lymphatics, blood, liver, gut, skin. They're all major detox pathways. Even respiration is a detox pathway for certain things. And so they're very, very beneficial in all that regard. Um, but it's interesting so back to these mouse studies, they had actually shown the metabolic benefits to blood sugar and insulin and blood pressure and other vital signs. Mice who are given a transplant of fecal bacteria, like oral transplant, from fit mice. So lazy, not you know, inactive, I won't say lazy, they're not lazy, they're made to be lazy, but inactive mice who have poor metabolic health were given bacteria from mice with good metabolic health, and the poor health mice became healthier simply by gaining those bacteria. Because again, these bacteria produce all kinds of byproducts. They have all kinds of signaling pathways that go back and forth to every cell in the body, right? Even probiotics, right? It's very hard to culture them. A lot of them are actually dead in capsule. They're not living organisms anymore, but they even have these positive postbiotics they've made that coming through the system, even though they don't culture, they go through and create benefits because those byproducts signal back and forth to cytokines and cells and neurotransmitters and all kinds for production. So it's part of the ecosystem anyways. And exercise benefits that on all regards. Now, I wouldn't say go and eat a meal then go for a run. You're going to vomit. I mean, (laughs) anybody who's gone swimming after a large meal might cramp. That's fine. Uh, But in general, there is a bi-directional relationship of good bacteria to producing healthy metabolic benefits, allowing better hormonal health, metabolic health, um, energy, blood pressure, insulin, right? Output, strength, neurological health, and vice versa, where exercise directly benefits your bacterial profiles. Yeah, no, love it. I mean, there, there, there's no there's no disadvantage to being active, and it's fascinating that you can transfer the profile, the gut profile of active mice into inactive mice. They're gonna they're gonna be looking for that as another. Uh, Give it fifty you know, years, it'll be a product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Because just like we have the weight loss drugs now, yeah. Yep, it'll be <laughs> it'll be fecal transplants. They're already trying to patent certain strains and like. I, I see that 50 years from now, I made a prediction already that the very wealthy will be purchasing fecal transplants to have to exercise less and get the benefits like they're doing the surgery and pills today. For sure. Yeah, no, it's insane. And I, I'm a big fan of lifestyle change. And I know that's, that's what you're an advocate for here. And even if we can't understand the why, we can understand the what to do about it to some extent. You know, we could at least compare and try and experiment. We're, we're going to be recording a small, a small mini episode after this to answer a few more questions for listeners who are on my email list. So for folks who want even more from Josh, um, we're going to answer some things as well as some Q&A. But before we leave, is there anything you wish I had asked you, Josh, and what is your answer? Wow, that's a great question. We've covered so much. 
here's my thing that I think everybody should know, maybe as kind of a last word here. Your gut bacteria, really, like we talked about here, it is everything. The power of one small thing. Are you familiar, Philip, with toxoplasmosis? That sounds familiar. Is that the one you get from cat feet, uh, cat yeah, litter cat, boxes? Yeah, that's right. the one. So anybody who's been pregnant might know their doctor says, like, don't change the litter box because they contain a parasite or prone to containing a parasite called toxoplasma gondii. Now, these toxoplasma ba- or, uh, parasites, their goal is to get into the belly of a cat, right? Because they want to live their best life. They want to do what they do and breed and grow and, you know, hashtag live, laugh, love. And so they get to a cat. How do they do that? Well, they actually will make themselves get into mice because they know mice get eaten by cats. This little individual parasite knows this, but it goes two steps further. Number one, it actually burns out the dendrites, the fear center of the mouse's brain Mm. to make less afraid of cats. As a prey animal, it runs the other direction. So now it's not afraid of cats, but it takes it a step further. The second piece is it rewires the mouse's brain in order to be sexually attracted to the smell of cat urine. So it will then seek out cats, not be afraid of cats, increasing the likelihood of it ending up in a cat's belly. And we've seen tests from people, for example, who have been really heroic, running into a burning building to save a stranger, jumping into the street to push a baby out of the way of a a moving car who's not paying attention. Many of them have been infected with toxoplasma bacteria, so much so the US military, there's been mutterings about using it in soldiers for less afraid of battle. But the idea being, this one little parasite Right, has that much power to rewrite an entire biological organism from a mouse to a human. That's one. You have a hundred trillion bacteria inside of your gut. If they are in line, picture what they can do for you. If they're out of balance, imagine what they could do to you. And that's the thought I'll leave you with. And it's it's a positive one in my opinion, right? Because now you have the power of of choice and control over that to some extent. Hundred percent, you do. Awesome. That's that's what I take from that. So, uh, Josh, where can listeners learn more about you and your work? So easiest way to get a hold of me uh, is over at gutsolution.ca. I do work worldwide for those dealing with Crohn's and colitis. There's links there, of course, to the podcast, any information you want. Uh, I'm biased. It's a great show if you want to learn more about gut specifically. Every single week, we have some sort of world-famous expert, Stephen Gundry, William Lee. Um, We had a, a famous plastic surgeon from Beverly Hills actually coming in to talk about wound healing all kinds of cool connects between your gut and your everyday health. And we also do weekly episodes, just Q&A from our listeners. Submit a question, we make an episode for you. Uh, and that's, like you mentioned, Reversible, the Ultimate Gut Health Podcast, but it can all be found at gutsolution.ca. Gutsolution.ca, so that's out of Canada. Yes, sir, Calgary, Alberta. That's right. All right, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And for those listening, follow the podcast, Reversible, um, and, and get all the great content that Josh just mentioned. Um, Josh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show, man. It's a lot of fun. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much, Philip. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wits and Weights. If you found value in today's episode and know someone else who's looking to level up their wits or weights, please take a moment to share this episode with them. And make sure to hit the follow button in your podcast platform right now to catch the next episode. Until then, stay strong. Hey, before you go, I want to let you know about a free resource I have. They are free guides on everything from fat loss to eating out to building muscle to managing hunger to figuring out the best macros for you and more being added all the time. 
You want to get the most out of these podcasts and your time to look and feel your best. And these free guides will give you a quick and easy way to know what to do. If you want to get your hands on these completely free guides, you can head over to witsandweights.com slash free. That's witsandweights.com slash free to get your free guides and level up your results today.